بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وكفى والصلاة والسلام على المصطفى الحمد لله منشي الخلق من عدمي ثم الصلاة على المختار في القدمي مولا يصلي وسلم دائما أبدا على حبيبك خير الخلق كلهم ورسبكت اللسنز وفرنز if you ask many people who reverted to Islam or many Muslims who are not practicing at some stage in their life and later on realized and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted hidayat and guidance and they came upon salah, they came upon the community. If you ask them what attracted them to deen, and they will tell you that it was the discipline of deen, the discipline of Islam. That where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates a system for everything. You don't eat what you want to eat, you have to eat within a particular system. Your food has to be prepared in a certain way, it has to come from a particular source. You want to earn in the dunya, the, the deen does not stop you, but where that earning is from, the source of that earning is governed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can't open up any trade that you want to, there are certain products that you are allowed to sell, uh, most products you are allowed to sell, and there are certain restrictions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has demanded of you. Who you cohabitate with as your partner, as your wife, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put restrictions there. You can't come to the conclusion that because I like that female or I like that person, now we are going to live together for an X number of years. It has to be done in a certain way. It's called the system of nikah, the system of marriage. There's an exchange of meher, there's the presentation of her representative, you are your representative. There's formality. So they always allude to a point that where we come from, there was no formality. You do whatever you want to do. You like it, carry on, buy it, do it, just carry on moving how you want to in whatever direction. But how could that ever be correct? Because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands that He has got ultimate control over your life, then we want to see that governance. Then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala want from me right now? Every Muslim knows that it is the waqt and the time of Jummah, I need to be doing a particular activity. One or two hours from now, it's Asr and then Maghrib and then Isha. Your entire day, your month, your year is governed within a particular system. This formality is what attracted them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has extended that formality and that governance to every one of us. At any time, a person is governed by a law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, especially if that person is a Muslim adult male. Especially if that is a Muslim adult male, if he is a mard, if he is a male, there are special laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directed upon him. That either he is a son unto his parents, he's 14, 15, 16. His life is not without responsibilities. He's a pair, he's got parents, he's got elders in the family. He has to make sure that they are as comfortable as possible within his means. It's not a free life for him. Years from now, a few years later, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants him the barakah of nikah, it doesn't end there. Then that woman, that lady coming into his marriage, coming into his nikah, it is not simply a fulfillment of personal passion and desire, but rather it extends to how I fulfill the rights of that wife by way of a roof over her head, by way of decent food and clothing, which is called nafaqa in the annals of Islam. All of these governances extend unto him. And then the subject of our discussion this very moment is his awlad and his children. 
that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants him that awlad and that children, that offspring, whether it is his own biological offspring through the medium of nikah, or whether he has assumed that responsibility, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows that you know a, a child is adopted, brought inside a household, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa adopted, Sayyidina Zayd radiallahu anh, Zakariya alayhi salatu wasalam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks that he took over the custodianship, the custody of Maryam alayhi salam, that was his niece, not his biological child, but he took over responsibility, food, tarbiyah, nurturing is my responsibility. So whatever or whatever means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so chose for a person, whether it be biological, whether it be adoptive, whatever the case may be, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands a particular responsibility which is summarized in this ayat of the Quran Kareem that O oh, you who believe, Ku anfusakum wa ahlikum nara save yourself and your family from the fire of Jahannam. That is a summary of your responsibility. Your summary delves in this ayat here. That you will save yourself, you will make the utmost attempt to save yourself. وَأَهْلِكُمْ And you will save those who are your family from the fire of Jahannam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even says, وَقُودُهَا النَّاسُ hijara That the fuel of that fire is not the wood and the petrol and the diesel of this dunya. The fuel of that fire is people and rocks, people and stones. You know, the ulama say that why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use this particular example? Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have just left it at that. Obviously, it's a fire, it needs to burn, it needs fuel from somewhere and somewhere. Why the particular mention of people and stones? You see, people we can understand that those that are now going in that direction, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us. But stones is something in reference to something particular, a particular aspect of the human being is where that person's heart has become so unreceptive to accepting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's command that it is even worse than a piece of stone. It becomes even worse than a piece of stone. Hence Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that watch out O mankind. I'm giving you this responsibility of looking after your family so that you and them may be saved from such a torment, such a fire that the fuel of that fire is people and stones that is the hearts of people that have become even worse than stones. Because the stone of the world the stone that is out there on the ground remembers Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It still knows that it is the servant of Allah. We can't hear it. We can't communicate with it. But every one of the makhluqat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has their own system of communicating with their creator. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this in the Quran. Warad, even the thunder and the lightning. Yusabbihu makes a tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In your ears it's a terrifying sound. But in reality what is it? Its own way of making the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The birds, the, 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 the wind that blows to, through the trees, all of them make the dhikr and the remembrance of Allah but you cannot understand. So too even the stone that is outside there, made of elements and rock that you build your house in, that you use for gravel, that particular stone still remembers Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says there is one stone that is even harder than that. 
And that is the heart of a person who doesn't remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So do not fall in that category and ensure that your family also do, do not, does not fall in that category. Where does it start from? It starts from a person understanding their parental responsibility. Every generation in this world is the product of their parents. If a person is doing good, Imam Ghazali would say that that if you saw a person, that his akhlaq, his character, his adab is very good, then look who his parents were. His parents may not have even been Muslim, but his parents took on the responsibility of teaching this person the best of character. And therefore, as a result, it is his responsibility to pass it on. But the first credit from the people of the world go to those who raised him. So if a person, alhamdulillah, we can see that this person is a good khadim. He's always there for khidmat. He's, he's got it inside him. That he thinks of himself before everybody else. It's not from somewhere or a characteristic that came by accident. It fell from the sky and when it hit him on his head. It came from his nurturing. It came from where he was now brought up. And he was raised by either his immediate biological parents or his uncle or somebody and somebody passed that on him. It is the responsibility of the ummah. That the very same characteristics that were taught to us. To the best of our ability, we pass it on to the next generation. Hence Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us that responsibility. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that how does a person do so? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks in the ayat of the Qur'an al-Kareem, اِقْرَى بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ Read in the name of your Rabb who created. I want you to dwell on this ayat here for a minute or two. اِقْرَى Read in the name of your Rabb who created. Must have heard this here in a dozen bayans, if not more by now. Iqra, the first verse that came upon Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa when he was inside the cave. And the cave was very dark, and it was the month of Ramadan, it was the 27th night, or rather should I say, Laylatul Qadr of the month of Ramadan. And the Jib- Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam comes down, and he says, Iqra, O Muhammad, read in the name of your Rabb who created. The first proof, that the kitab, the book of Allah, the Qur'an, is not written by man. Somebody asks you that, you know what? You say, you Muslims say that the, that the book, this Qur'an you have is not written by man, it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Afford me some proofs that this is in fact the case. The first proof is in Iqra. Read in the name of your Rabb who created. In a community of Arabs at that time, reading was rare. There were very few people in Mecca and Medina or anywhere in the whole peninsula that could read. It assumed that in Mecca itself there were only 17 people that could read and write. Umar radiallahu happened to be one of them. Most of the people could not read and write, including our Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa He was an unlettered prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it was something which was common. People were not taught, they were not schooled. It was not a culture of learning to read and write at that time. So, so if anybody wants to tell a story to a community, let's say I want to write a book or tell a story, a story of entertainment, a recreational story. My first opening statement, my first opening sentence must be something that everybody can relate to. Otherwise, if 99.9% of my crowd can't relate to me in the first minute, 
they're going to fall asleep. What kind of a storyteller is this over here that is talking beyond our head and beyond us? That's every, every person, every human being that writes or tells a story that in their opening first few lines, it must be captivating and drawing the people. They can become boring halfway through the book, but their first one or two lines has to be a proper bait and a proper hook in order to get their audience going. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not bound by the laws of insan, by the laws of the human being. This is how a human being starts. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts talking about iqra, read, which nobody there could really relate to because it was an unlettered society. Had this been the work of any human being, this Qur'an, they would have first been compelled to start the discussion with something that everybody is on the same page. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is no human being, is no insan, is not bound by the rules that you and I are bound by when it comes to writing and compilation or literacy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ahad, he is one, he is samad, he is independent. And therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's system is, I will tell you what you need to know, or not what you like to hear. And I, what you need to know is Iqra, read in the name of your Rabb who created. What you would like to hear is stories of your ancestors, of how great you were as an Arab community, how hospitable you were, how good you are in poetry. That will come maybe later on, but now this is what you need rather than what you want to hear. Iqra, read. This is what you need right now. Hence, Iqra, bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq came down to the community of non-readers. But look how he transformed that community. Look how much attention Rasulullah gave to the very word Iqra itself. You know when the first battle, the first major battle of Islam took place. Battle of what? Battle of Badr. Before Uhud was Badr. Right? Now this was considered the first major battle. There were skirmishes before. There were skirmishes before 10, 20 people met on an ad hoc basis. But where you had a proper military outfit, two proper military outfits, dedicated and designed of going to combat, no matter what were their, uh, were their equipment, but the intent was that we are going to fight it out, that was Badr. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about Badr. That he joined you and your army in such a time that nobody knew that such a war was going to take place. After all of this was done, there were 70 captives that were brought to Madinatul Manawwara. 70 of the kuffar of the disbelievers were slain on that battlefield and 70 were brought as prisoners to Madinatul Manawwara. Now what to do with these prisoners? The debate was on amongst the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. Prior to this day, there was no history of prisoners because there was no war. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had not received any direct uh, injunction what you must do with these prisoners. Do we let them go scot-free, goodwill, you know what I mean? Uh, we leave you on your conscience, like how sometimes the judge says, you know what, this, you're a first-time offender, you look like a good fellow, can't run very far, we'll release you on your conscience, your trial is set three months from now. Do we do something like that? Or do we go to this level of killing them, executing them, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually speaks about and, and wanted at the end, hatta fil ard, that we wanted you to do this. So there was this debate amongst themselves. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhu were now 
giving Rasulullah some different different opinions. Finally, Abu Bakr radiallahu anh, who Rasulullah now obviously considered his opinion, they come to the conclusion, this is what we are going to do. We are going to set a ransom. And according to many, that ransom was set at 10,000 dirhams. The equivalent of what you would call a hundred, hundred and twenty thousand today. That you pay this, you raise this sum of money from your family, cousins put money together, whatever the case may be. Put it together and you bring it here and you're a free man, scot-free, ready to go. Many people could afford that amount of money. They raised that money and they were ready to go. Other people who could raise somewhere, maybe 60-70%, it was on a case-by-case basis. Until you could prove that your intent was there to pay, Rasulullah would let you go. Now what if you had an indigent person who couldn't even raise 15, 20, 30%? I mean, Makkah didn't only have wealthy people inside there. There were also people whose uh, means were modest, if I may put it in that way. So this was the second tier that Rasulullah said, that those people who knew how to read and write, what? Who know how to read and write from amongst the, from amongst the prisoners. If they can make, uh, if they can ensure that ten of the youngsters of Medina are taught the skill of reading and writing, we will release them when these ten have become proficient. When these ten have become proficient and are able, these ten youngsters are, are, are proficient in reading and writing, they are free to go, and that will be sort of like the penalty that they have paid us, no need to pay any ransom thereafter. You know who is a product of those ten? There were many others besides ten, because a number of the prisoners who knew how to read and write, it's assumed that 30, 40 youngsters in that whole episode, that whole event learned how to read and write. But you know who is amongst the products of this exercise? Zaid bin Harisa, Zaid bin Sabit radiallahu anh, the compiler of the Qur'an. When years later, when Umar radiallahu anh goes to Abu Bakr radiallahu anh and says, Oh Abu Bakr, so many Hufas are dying in the battle. We are concerned about the Qur'an, let's put it in the book form. Remember it wasn't in a complete book form in the time of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa although it was written on different parchments, on different papers all over. That compilation started in the time of Abu Bakr radiallahu anh, completed in the time of Umar radiallahu anh. Umar radiallahu anh was the one who came with the suggestion that Ya Abu Bakr, we need to put it inside a, you know, a, a book form, so that we will have this as a resource. Who is going to un- undertake this task? Because whoever is going to undertake this task, with all likelihood, he must be the most proficient writer, compiler amongst us. Zaid radiallahu anh. Zaid bin Thabit uh, uh, bin, uh, radiallahu anh. Who now, Zaid bin Harisa radiallahu anh. Who now is of the Ansar. And he now, this Zaid radiallahu anh, he had now assumed the responsibility. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam now, already in his time, when he was 17 years of age, he was a communique between Rasulullah sallallahu and the tribes of you know, the northern part of Arabia. He was a product of that same prisoner community teaching people to read and write and here he is a decade and a half later or so compiling the Quran Kareem. The vision of Rasulullah when it came to education.
The vision of Rasulullah that everyone must be proficient in being able to read and write. That if your generation was unable to read and write, then it will be a disservice to the next generation if they do not have that level of education, especially that education of deen. And hence Rasulullah invested in it. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum were shocked that never in the history of warfare in the Arabian Peninsula did a person come upon us this idea that those who know how to read and write must teach other people how to read and write. It was either we'll execute you a ransom, you will work for us for free like a slave for a number of years, or some sort of a worldly material negotiation is going to take place. Never ever an educative type of a transaction as it was as was visible in this particular scenario here. Why? Because Rasulullah when it came to education was in his own way a visionary that every person there needs the proficiency of the of the written language even though we don't have it. This is the culture of Islam. That's why Alhamdulillah, wherever you go and wherever the Muslims have been established, what gets established side by side with the, with the, you know, with the, with the, with the masjid? How to teach read, reading and writing, how to teach Arabic. And as the community progresses, how to now delve into those academics which are useful, so that a child will now be introduced to that type of learning and teaching, and even not to our community for that matter. It's not just observed here in South Africa, but wherever you go, in the dunya, in the world, how many Muslim philanthropists there have been, that have been at the forefront of basic education for everybody that everybody must have the dignity of that quality education to uplift themselves. This culture is not new. This culture is from the time of our Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa It's from the culture of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum that all those living in our society, Muslim and non-Muslim, must be able to put pen to paper, be able to record and have the dignity of that education. We are at the beginning of the academic year in South Africa. And Alhamdulillah, the very least that a person can take responsibility for is his own. The very least that a person can take responsibility, if you're not taking responsibility for the neighbor, for the town, for the township, whatever the case may be, the least a person can take responsibility for is his own. My children, my nieces, my nephews, my grandchildren, the people who are in my inner circle, them, for them to become proficient, number one in reading the Qur'an Kareem, in memorizing the book of Allah, which is the superior knowledge and which cannot be equated with any other academic or acquired knowledge, that is secondary, this is primary. And with the same enthusiasm, if not more, that one now applies towards the kid must go to school. Next week we are not going to be absent on that first day. The same enthusiasm be extended to the madrasa and to the maktab as well. That I will extend more enthusiasm and I will not hear any excuses and I will create a culture inside my household that we now give precedence to all 
all forms of education, especially the education of my deen, because that is the education of my culture, of my background, and that is my ticket to saving myself and my family from the fire of Jahannam. But respected friends, attitudes, and um, what's called a precedence, that starts from day one. If the work week started last week after the January break, any good manager, any good boss, as soon as he walks in on that first day, knows that I have got to set the right precedence and I've got to set the right mood today. If I set the mood that, you know what, we're coming back after two weeks, let's ease into this whole day. We will have three and four lunch breaks. We will have two tea breaks every one and a half hour. I'll give you guys off. Take half an hour after, you know, after every one hour so that we can ease into the first week. Nobody operates on that level. Why? Because he knows that the same routine that I demand one month from now needs to start today on this particular Monday here. Otherwise it will never get done. Every parent now knows that that very same cycle of precedence starts immediately. That's how the academic year starts for school, for madrasa. That what is expected of you next week and next month starts today, on this particular day. So that the mood, the attitude, the system, the sink, as it is called, S-Y-N-C, the sink, all of it starts as of today. And this is a part of the tarbiyah, of the training of a believer. On the day of Eid, it may be a day of enjoyment. Does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, take a day off? Take two salahs off because you are merry-making with the family? No, have another salah. Ramadan, you tired at the end of the day. No, you've got another salah called taraweeh that comes at the end. You go to the Baytullah, it's your holiday. What, are you on a vacation? No, tahajjud azan is given to remind you that half past three, four o'clock. Another extra azan is given to you to remind you that this is your responsibility at that, at that particular point, whether you're in the Haram Sharif or whether you're in the hotel or wherever you are, another azan is sounded for you. But this is a believer. A believer seeks their recreation. That you're looking for that recreation of the heart, that comfort of the heart. It is in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is in the recitation of the Quran. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq. Wa akhru da'awal. Alhamdulillah.